The business of culture, the culture of business, creatives, media and technology, markets and policy, work life. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. I like being a good dad, a present husband, a member of my community, and, you know, a guy who reads an occasional book. I'm really good at my job, and I value working hard, but it's not the only thing that I do. Working from home allows me to feel more like a complete version of myself. Hybrid work, quiet quitting, the eternally delayed return to the office, zooming in from a cruise ship. It's increasingly apparent that work is not going to snap back to some imagined pre-COVID normal. Not that everyone is in agreement about this. The friction is often intergenerational. Where to? Here with The Great Dispersion. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can message me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me from Las Vegas in his peripatetic existence is Ed Zitron. He's CEO of EZPR. He is a prolific writer. You've read him in The Atlantic on Business Insider Medium. Uh, his substack is Ed Zitron's Where's Your Ed At? And it's become a cottage industry of its own in our WFHWTF era. How are you, sir? Welcome back. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. You know, you hit something in an Atlantic essay that you wrote about quite some time back, and you said that it still gives you much sadness, and you dwell on it, that this mentorship that was assigned to you in your first job in PR, which is pretty rough and tumble, was just kind of figure it out. This idea of proximity to mentors and older people working with greenhorns was just very overrated and very self-serving, and something really resounded about that with me. I worked at a prominent brokerage firm right out of college, and it prided itself on culture and everything, and they assigned a mentor to me, and it turned out to be a very verbally abusive person. I think he got stung Jesus. by the FBI of the last two or three years. <laughs> but why do we keep believing that, and why do we keep preaching that as corporations when in, in, in practicality, if you polled younger workers, it's, it's very rare and elusive to find that kind of stick-to-your-ribs mentor? So... A large part of it is I believe a lot of senior managers, VPs, executives have romanticized and mythologized their own lives. They believe that what got them successful was a combination of hard graft mm. and being in the office. And the office was where they got mentored, of course, which they barely remember. <laughs> and they say, and thus, that's how the world actually works in the office. You've even got younger people like Charlie Warsaw over at the Atlantic with a column that he largely A-B tested using my ideas, I think. Uh, that, one's, that one's just a little bitterness there. But in, in all seriousness, you have younger people also pushing this idea of mentorship because it's how they wish the world worked. It's how they wish the world looked. It would be so much nicer if the world was this one where you go into the office and you're mentored 
and your boss doesn't just treat you like trash. And yeah, this is not how it works because mentorship is actually quite difficult. It's genuinely challenging because, quite frankly, you have to teach a person to do your job, which is also vulnerability. You have to be willing to train your successor on some level. But on top of that, it's time-consuming and annoying and must be formalized so companies don't do it. However, companies can pretend they like the idea of doing it. That's also a way they could do it, which is what most companies do. And so it's something where I wish that it happened more, but I just don't believe it's ever going to happen because I believe that corporate America has kind of given up on anything approaching remotely conscientious capitalism. They, they are full-scale surf capitalism, where they believe that those who work for others are automatically subordinate, are must be glad that they have the work, and they should be proud that they are lucky enough to work for a boss who is nice enough to not mentor them or help them in any appreciable way. They should just be glad to have the money and screw them. And yeah, it sucks. And it is why you are seeing so much chaos with this work from home stuff, because People have kind of worked out the office didn't really do much, really didn't. <laughs> and I think about the many layers, and you've written about this as well. You think about the uh, track, for example, on a Wall Street apprenticeship, analyst, associate, VP, managing director. Anybody could tell you at the an analyst level, these aggrieved people who are slapping together pitch books and models for you know, 80, 85 hour weeks, that there's a lot of value added at the VP level. There's a lot of people checking in over their phones and pushing down orders through the associate. And so it must be threatening when you see the likes of Jamie Dimon or the CEO of Goldman Sachs saying, we really need people back at the office. Well, the pushback from the younger people is, well, we've had our most productive years in 2021 and 2020, even with the SPAC boom and everything else happening. If you're judging us in a brutally PL, you know, end of the day type business, how could you turn around and say that the office was important? Uh, I guess what this is exposing, to your point, Ed, is that there are a lot of people not doing anything who want yes. to be back in the office for downward-facing FaceTime. Yes, so that they can look busy rather than be busy. Yeah, talk talk to me about that because it's still somewhat taboo to talk about. Uh, not, not for me. I've never had the problem <laughs> with it. But in my esteemed career, I've seen many people paid six figures who do nothing. I know that sounds mean. I know it sounds mean to say that. Short and lovely people. They're not, by the way, but I'm just saying that for some reason. You get people in positions whose entire existence is mostly defined by how stressed they look at their job. They are there at the office so that they can be seen, and they have some sort of function to the organization, but they are there to be seen and to find other people's work before they present it to the people that pay them so that they can claim the work was theirs and get appreciated for someone else's stuff. This is the middle management layer of America, which is so, so very scared of remote work. Because guess what? If your entire income stream is based on looking busy, it's very hard to do that online. It is almost impossible, sure. I would argue, to seem just busy online. Because if you're on Twitter all day, which of course I am, you don't look busy. You look like you're <laughs> around on Twitter which, again, is not what I'm doing. It's very serious. You just wouldn't understand it if I explained it. But in, in all seriousness, you've got these massive managerial layers in big companies with people who, quite honestly, I, I don't know what they do. I don't know what the average CEO does. I wrote a piece where I talked about this as well. 
And it's like CNBC did a study around what CEOs do all their day. And like half of their day is nothing. It's just meetings and like talking to people vaguely, like so like quasi-social professional crossovers. And if they are doing stuff all day, they should be publishing what they do all day. And if they want people back in the office, they should be telling them in a numerical sense, in a defined sense, why. The problem is they don't do any real work, so they don't really know what real work looks like. What are they going to? What are they going to well, tell I'll you? I'll be asking this forever. You know, in in market circles, they talk about a cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio. Don't you know? Swear by the market right now or the market at this valuation or anything. But if you smooth out earnings over a ten year period, that's kind of my way of saying: What if we didn't take this three and a half percent unemployment rate? And I don't know what a normal unemployment rate is, but you stress tested this kind of environment and this new reality of work from home. At an 8% unemployment rate or 10% unemployment rate, or you superimpose it over a year like 2002 or 2008, where you as a junior worker do not have clout, how much of this is a function of the huge shortage, the the shortage of personalities, the fact that you could shop around and pit one firm against another and say, I'm working from home or else? I think that that was the case last year. And I think now that we're in this not quite recession. No one's really sure. There's like 80 articles that say, are we in a recession? No one knows. Which is, by the way, the single worst journalism in the world. And everyone who writes those articles should be, I'm so tired of it. Just tell me what's going on. Anywho, I think that there is a degree here of, yes, people are, people are willingly turning away from jobs saying, if you don't give me, give me remote or give me death, just as they should. But I do think that there is now, as with any recession or quasi-recession, there is going to be a pushback with like, why should we? Why should we give you remote? There's a recession. You can't get another job. They're wrong, but they're thinking that way. And the long and short of it, in my mind, is that the few companies that are going to be very stringent about this, I'm thinking Goldman Sachs, massive labor abusers, Goldman Sachs, you're going to see like Goldman Sachs and people like that eventually get quite embarrassed by this. I don't believe that history is going to look fairly positively on Goldman. Here, axiomatically, are a lot of the most coveted employees at places like Goldman Sachs or Apple, which is dying to use this spaceship campus. These are the kinds of people who get calls, who could who could leave, who could have a foot mm-hmm. out the door. It seems like a, a perverse kind of culling, a reverse culling. You don't want to do it that way. Yeah, you're, anyone who feels that they have the power in their job to turn around to their boss and say, screw you, remote or I leave, is probably quite talented and has leverage and the ability to get more employment. So it feels counterintuitive to your point that you would challenge them in such a way. Also, Apple had, Apple did like a nine minute long commercial about a company that was forced to go remote. Uh, sorry, they were forced to go back to the office and everyone quit and started their own company. But like, Apple did this and then immediately <laughs> told everyone to go back to the office. Honestly, kind of admire how much goal they have there. But at the same time, there was so any tech company who is pushing return to office is just their heads are so far up their behinds. It just blows me away that any company that otherwise would not need an in-person, you can't do like medicine remotely. It's just not possible. But there are plenty of other jobs you, that are, you can do remotely, such as finance, which I hear is on the internet now. You can do that remotely just fine. In fact, we've been doing it for two damn years. Why are you acting like this is a problem? It isn't a problem. You're the problem. Like, what's his name? 
was it David Solomon from Goldman Sachs? That's right. What a, what a cretin. What a buffoon of a person. Just someone so disconnected from his people. If you Google Goldman Sachs Labour, you find so many stories about how terrible they are and how terrible they are to work for. And their reaction to that is to say, hmm, what if we were worse? And, and at what point is it, I mean, is it kind of more, uh, I guess the mercenary consideration is Goldman Sachs is a massive owner of real estate in lower Manhattan, in midtown Manhattan, in Jersey City. And at some point, you just can't ignore that. If this stuff is sitting vacant and derelict and you're on the meter and everything, you have to justify the real estate expense. You're on sure. the hook for it. But in the same way, I want, I, I have not done, I've not got a big enough brain to have do, done this myself, but I have to wonder if people who owned horse-drawn cars started getting a bit worried when they noticed these real cars with motors. Do you think they, do you think they were like, well, we've got to make sure everyone keeps using horses. So let me say this. Suffice to say, then, you're saying that this is a true demarcation. We're not at a kind of a testing point where this was an aberration with the pandemic. No. If the unemployment rate, if you have a deep recession or anything like a financial crisis, it's not going to force the worker to be grateful again and accept lower wages and, and brutal FaceTime conditions. Yes, but to be clear about that, I don't think the battle's over, but I think it is going to be increasingly more difficult to prove to workers why you are doing this just on a very basic level and on top of that companies love saving money they love it they love spending less money and making more money as boomer adjacent and boomer aged people start aging out of the managerial sect i don't think the people that replace them the younger people are going to say you know what, let's do this colossally stupid and expensive thing again. It's good. We loved it. I just think they're going to choose the better, cheaper option. Like that's. I don't think any of this is... Anyone who's choosing remote work who hasn't already, anyone who switches to it, anyone who says this is what we're doing now, is doing so out of any great altruism. They're just going to do it based on the fact it's cheaper and better. Everyone is generally happy... Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Ed Zitron. He is CEO of the national media relations and PR company, Easy PR. His substack, which has become hugely popular and hugely tweeted, is Ed Zitron's Where's Your Ed At? You've seen the byline in The Atlantic, in Business Insider. Ed, uh, talk to me about that substack. I mean, you, you, you wrote somewhere that it was somewhere where you kind of blew off steam and you needed to write and you needed to get things off your chest. And it suddenly picked up and is being referenced everywhere. Is this kind of is this still a hobby? Is it a, a, a sidetrack from what you're doing? You're increasingly being called every day to comment on work from home when your day job is is you're a CEO of a PR firm. So it's funny. I started it because I was getting a bit mopey, and I was just like, if, if I don't write regularly, I start getting itchy. I just have always loved writing my whole life. It is something that I've always been very good at. So yeah, I started doing this when I got COVID in November 2020. I had tickled the newsletter a bit in 2019, didn't really stick, but I had to distract myself from having the novel coronavirus. I was isolated from my family. I had to do something. So I started writing and I wrote a piece about Farhead Manju being quite lax with COVID regulations, writing this whole 
piece he wrote where it was like, yeah, so here are the reasons I shouldn't travel for Thanksgiving. Anyway, I'm going to do it anyway. Then I started writing about some labor-focused stuff, a bit of work-from-home stuff, and then I wrote a piece in June of last year called The Remote Culture War or The Work-From-Home Culture War. I forget exactly what it was. And that one really took off a few hundred thousand views. Really good stuff. I started getting some momentum, and I just wrote regularly. I tried to do every day. I cannot sustain the same pace. Do you do you mind my asking, has this thrown off commercial fruits? I mean, in the way Substack works, that you suddenly scaled so much that it, it it's providing a side stream? No, and well, let me put it like this. I deal, wheel and deal in pitching journalists about my clients. I want journalists to write about my clients. I want journalists to find my clients interesting. And I'm quite good at picking clients. I'm good at finding things that I know journalists will like. But a large part of my business is journalists liking me enough to read my emails. So the ultimate trick to trick a journalist into thinking I'm one of them is to write 400,000 words, which is what I did. I did not do it for the re- anything malevolent or untoward, but the side benefit is my job is about getting journalists to respond to my emails, and now they want to more because I've proven to them I'm not a goon that only cares about myself, that I actually care about the issues they're writing about and the things that matter to them. It's become very useful for the business in a very honest way. Well, you're almost a you're a hybrid practitioner. If I follow your persona on Twitter and it leads to these Atlantic bylines and insider bylines and places where you've been quote quoted in the local and national press, and then it refers me back to the Substack, which has kind of become indispensable. Let me quote from a, a piece that you did on quiet quitting crony capitalism and we'll get to quiet quiet quitting it must be the bane of your existence when i'll survive cited but you say let's cut the bs let's cut the bs the real reason this entire conversation of quiet quitting is happening is that companies are not loyal to their workers if workers become upset with their working conditions the most common refrain from those in power is to ask why they aren't more grateful for what they've got there isn't a great deal of data about how often people are promoted from within, but there's plenty of data that shows that external hires are generally paid more despite performing worse than those promoted from within. Companies barely train or mentor people anymore, and yet executives are now crowing about the idea that workers aren't, quote, going above and beyond for companies that provide, in many cases, very little beyond the paycheck. It has become transactional, and yet you see the likes of David Solomon of various other executives out there, of Jamie Dimon, I mean, old school boomer Wall Street saying that you have to be in the office for sharing of ideas. Like, do these guys think we were whiteboarding and always going out for beers and, you know, bouncing the ball off the wall and collaborating all the time? I mean, I had my headsets on yeah. and trying to ignore other workers. Yes. And, and there's a cheaper way of doing that. I don't have to take a one hour commuter train each way and then pay for lunch and these other areas that, you know, I, I could be a happier cow that gives more milk if you give me the freedom and the agency to do that. Exactly. And so much of this, it, what you said there is very important. Jamie Dimon says, or you, you intimate that Jamie Dimon's thing is, oh yeah, well, you know, people sit around whiteboarding. The truth is he doesn't know he's not in the office. The reason that none of these people seem to have a logical idea about what they're talking about is it's blatantly obvious none of them have any real, clear set understanding of what happens in the day-to-day of their companies. So they say these stupid, idiotic things, these dumb statements, 
that make absolutely no sense to any human being who's actually been in an office. Talking about collaboration and serendipity. Doesn't exist. Shut up. Tired of it. But Ed, what about the soft stuff of finding your life partner? Or your soulmate, or the friends. I do. I am nostalgic for that part. You know, my first years what? in Manhattan at the turn of the century, finding friends, meeting friends, friends. That 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 can't be in fairness. That can't be replicated over a Zoom happy hour. Okay, few things about that. Number one, the majority of workplace situations not ones that are conducive to having a friendship. I'm sorry, they're just not. They're just. Most working environments, especially extremely competitive financial ones, no, these people are not your friends. And on top of that, that's a bloody stupid reason to do it. If I said to my boss, which is me, if I said that I wanted to, um, my whole thing is I want to stay at home so that I can hang out with my neighbor who's my best friend. Not the case, but nevertheless. My boss would say, that's a remarkably stupid thing to ask of me. Why would you do that? This is a work thing. You need to come into the office because whatever reason. Similarly, why should I be coming into an office for a theoretical friendship with a person I've never met? What if I don't get that? Do I get more money if I don't make <laughs> friends or meet a future life partner? Like, it's just so nonsensical. Every one of these arguments is so bloody stupid. Oh, yeah, you, you, you're going to miss out on the friendships and work. I have met some of the most egregious bullies in existence at the workplace. Some truly worthless people that I will probably celebrate the death of. That is who I remember from my workplace. And, yeah, you could say, oh, Ed, well, you're just, you're biased. You, bi you had a bad experience. No, I get emails all the time about the psychopaths of the workforce. And you know what? It's just so deeply unfair that this is being said. Because on top of that, I don't want to make all my friendships from the workplace. What are you talking about? I don't want... I love the guys I work with. I'm very lucky to have the people who work for me. I treat them incredibly well and will continue to do so. But... I don't expect them to keep working for me because I'm such a nice bloke. I expect them to keep working for me because I treat them well, I pay them well. And that's all there really is. That's all there really should be. If you have workplace friendships, fantastic. Awesome. I'm lucky to have them. But using that as a reason to have the office, screw that. That is ridiculous. It is manipulative. And if you tried to apply the same logic to a single other thing in the workplace, your boss would laugh you out of the building. Oh, yeah, yeah, I want to do this because it would let me have more fun with my friends. Your boss would get so annoyed with you and say, no, you can't do that just for friendships. <laughs> yeah, you got Derek Thompson at The Atlantic pushing this noxious idea of, oh, work's not good for hard work. The office is good for soft work. What's that mean? What are you talking about? Did you get a concussion? Like, just because... There are so many people who desperately want to justify why they spent years in the office. It's totally fine to say it was kind of stupid, but we're better now. Uh. Like, it's fine. Just just do it. People are so scared to admit that they made a mistake or that they did something stupid for a long time for no reason. Just just do it. I'm wrong all the time. Hell, I've probably been wrong on this podcast at some point. And, well, radio show. <laughs> but But that's the thing. It's... So many of the arguments for the office fall apart the, the second you say, wait, reverse this situation. Imagine if I asked you to do the same thing. Imagine if I asked you 
to let me work remotely because it means I can spend more time with my work friends because we all live on the same street, which would be very funny, but unlikely. And it's just because there is no logic to any of this. There's no logic. There's no reason beyond. I believe a lot of bosses do not know what the hell is happening at their companies. And thus, they believe the office is the only way they can guarantee that people are actually working. Hold on to that thought. Full disclosure, we're talking to Ed Zitron on the work from home civil wars raging in the press and in corporate America uh, after this Labor Day. Do stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fulldradio.com. Please recommend us to mom, dad, and your uncle. You can catch us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram at handle fulldradio, and holler if you too would like to carry Full Disclosure on your air. If you are just joining us, we are talking to the prolific Ed Zitron. He is the CEO of EZPR, but he's become a a chief torchbearer for the work-from-home movement. He's kind of a hybrid journalist executive practitioner. He polls his clients and his workers, and he's out there calling BS when executives are being quoted on all these matters in the Wall Street Journal half-heartedly. Again, they're invoking this new normal. Uh, Does that come up every time since 2008, that when they want to talk about normalcy or something that they don't understand, that they throw around new paradigm thinking? We don't seem to know what normalcy is coming out of what was the old normal i never know i can never hold anyone's hand to the fire legitimately what was the old normal because the only time i think a new normal has arrived that i can remember in the last few years would be like 2013 well let me (laughs) let me pose this question to you going back to my first job again is why i find a lot of resonance in your writing is you go back to the ptsd and the disillusionment Uh it's almost mary shelley's frankenstein the beast coming out and seeing the real world like why was i uh, i was immediately disabused of this notion that you know uh, uh, of that nine to five and work-life balance that if you were really into this i was at goldman sachs you were at the beck and call of your associate. It was this kind of hazing ritual. You'd never worked 40-hour weeks. You probably worked 50, 60, 70-hour weeks. It could be for something as small as tweaking the color on a pitch book that they could uh-huh. call you at any time and just take over your life because they paid you $48,000 out of college. Is that an old normal? Is that something that's going to go away after all of these pandemic savings subside? Oh, God, no. Like th- What you described there is just how the workforce treats young people. Young people have been trashed. I moved to America, just to be clear, I moved to America the single best time other than if you moved in 2019, by which I mean, of course, 2008. I moved to New York in 2008. What a great time to be in town. People throwing themselves out of windows. I don't know if anyone remembers the Wall Street suicides that they really didn't want to cover. It's my conspiracy theory for the day, everyone. I, But nevertheless, it was a miserable time. But... That 2008 was where a lot of this labor abuse started. And quite frankly, it's still going to be bad for a long time because we haven't really fixed the fact that it costs too much to live in most places. That's also bad. But the whole taking over your life thing, I think it's going to be harder for companies to do that because of things like TikTok. I sound a million years old saying that, but it's just TikTok, Glassdoor, not LinkedIn, no one... Wait, explain explain I'm getting there. Don't you worry. So what it is, is it's now so much more easy to find out if a company sucks to work for. 
not just through Glassdoor, but people will just straight up post on TikTok being like, my job, my job sucks. Like they got the TikTok voiceover. My job sucks and I hate working here. But you have people willing and able to anonymously or otherwise call out these bad actors. And so you have situations where there'll be like Business Insider has done a lot of these. Uh, you remember Away? You know the company Away? That's right. There was the, the travel company. That was The Verge did a really great investigative journalist piece where they were interviewed people and found out, yeah, it was horrible working there. It is now just that bit worse for companies to do stuff like that. So they will treat workers exactly 1% better. But, and this is important, things are still really bad for working conditions in America, white collar and otherwise. And the whole take over your life thing is still very much alive in finance. Finance has a huge mental health problem, a huge labor abuse problem just on its own. And until people like David Solomon and JP, JP Morgan, that's his name now, that Jamie Dimon age out <laughs> of the industry, these are still going to be problems because there is a generational thing where these older people, I think they kind of get off on it. I think they enjoy it. I think they like the fact that people are overworked. They themselves, by the way, I am 100% sure did not work that hard. They just believe that they've changed Well, there's it. a mythology, I yeah. think, in your writing and a lot of this stuff. is like a this old day, people romancing a, a work ethic and an apprenticeship culture. You know, you hear it about the Wall Street. You know, even if you see the movie Wall Street, there were these older people with the, the cocky greenhorns who were taking inside information that that's... There's a lot of mythology there about the mentorship programs. Mentorship is thrown around a lot, but as you write, it's exceedingly elusive. It's very hard to find uh, a senior person who's going to be vulnerable and who's going to be open with you. And I always thought that was strange because at the pay scale that you're bringing in an entry-level FA, a financial analyst, or I don't know, a venture apprentice, I just this this modicum of saying that you matter or taking you out for a $19 tossed salad would go in such a long way oh, to yeah. the, the, the gentle psyche of an early 20-something, which is always amazed that, that it, they're so stingy with well, that. Well, let me tell you and, a story. And withholding then. that. So I have had some of the worst managers of all time. If any of you are listening, um, have a terrible day. In, in all seriousness, I had one really great manager, a fellow called Jeff Lavari. He took me aside. He knew I was very early to PR. He knew I had no idea what I was doing. That I was scared. And I was. I was in a new country. I mean, I'd lived in America before, but it was a new city for me at least. And it was very scary. It's a very isolating process. He took, he took me out and he gave me my first contact. Woman at uh, Investors Business Daily. She was mm -hmm. very patient with me. And, and actually, I learned how to pitch through her. And Sonia Carberry was her name. Lo lovely woman. I remember names specifically because I'm very grateful for these things. I will never forget Jeff. I would throw myself in front of a bus for Jeff because in a moment of isolation and fear, he took the three seconds it took to say, hey, what do you want to know and how can I help you? Meanwhile, other managers I've had in my career at non-specific points for legal reasons have, I remember a manager once saying that not only did they throw people under the bus, sometimes they were driving it. Hmm. I won't say that person's name, but I'm never going to forget it because that is evil. People like that are the problem and they are the most common entity. Most managers, I would argue, are labor thieves and idle people. Middle management is a pestilence. And quite frankly, I think those who 
those who have been pushing back against remote work the most are middle management types who are terrified that they can no longer come into a special work church and lord over people about how important they are. It's sickening because these are the people making the noise. They want collaboration and spontaneity because they can't actually tell you what they do for a living. <laughs> they just like, I, I think that that's what I do. Just please keep paying me. I, I have a great deal of debt. Didn't Warren Buffett say that when the tide goes out, you see who's not wearing swim trunks? Warren Buffett. Apply. Warren Buffett. I, I'm going to just say this. I do not know what Warren Buffett does all day. Like, he just, he pops up on CNBC. He's in the McDonald's drive-thru. He's in the McDonald's drive-thru. He's like, and he gets a CNBC article every day talking about how cool he is and how, like, he, this is what Warren Buffett does, which is useful to exactly zero readers. You are not Warren Buffett. You, none of none of his information is useful to you. I'm sorry. That's right. That's bad, right. bad news, fellas. But in, in all seriousness, somewhat bridging off is what is very much bothering me is, other than like apparently everything with how angry I am these days, but is that there are so many news outlets, CNBC being one of them, but the Wall Street Journal and New York Times being probably the worst ones, who are actively attacking remote work they want remote work gone and they clearly have a remit from somewhere i don't know if it's up top or i don't know whether the writers just agree with it and so they write these pieces that are insanely formulaic they are usually a quote from the future forum which is slack's weird consortium think tank thing where they talk about and that's what they use to prove that they have thought about remote work being good and then they interview three or four <laughs> boomers like the oldest people that they can find. And then one person who likes remote work, who's like in their mid twenties. No, I've definitely noticed and, that pattern. And then and it seems like it's, it's more like B2B reporting at that point. You want, you want executives out there to be stroked in their, in their suspicion towards remote work and work from home. It's middle management fan fiction. That's all it is. But the problem is, the New York Times and Wall Street Journal both dictate the narrative. So yeah, actually, they can make what they believe reality if they say it enough. If enough people believe that this is the future. I talked to someone earlier, a client, who talked about how she was saying, oh yeah, well, I think that the tide is turning and people are going back to the office. The reason, reason she said that was she'd read a lot about it. She'd read a lot about it in the news. That's what's happening. What's actually happening, in my opinion, is I think these people, these middle management types, are absolutely terrified. I think they the writing is on the wall for them, and I think they kind of realize that if your job is professionally doing other people's work, by which I mean taking other people's work after they do it, you are kind of screwed in a remote model. You don't have any way of proving usefulness. You can't steal work when your work comes from someone else remotely because you can't physically go and i i've had a manager in the past who used to watch over my screen and the moment something good happened he would call the boss from behind me mm. don't worry I, I ended up i ended up winning that one because i stopped doing anything the moment he walked over i closed my window I just well, Ed, you know, this all has me reminded of my first two years out of college at Goldman Sachs. And here's a footnote for you. The, the one person who Goldman Sachs brought out in front of the analyst class as a kind of a model 
associate bound. This is the person you want to be was a magna cum laude graduate of Harvard University. Mm. And um, he was uh, out there and gentle and he talked to people about mentorship and culture and everything. I, I last saw him in a documentary. He left for a tech startup in 2001, but he was most recently in a Colombian prison being tortured uh, for securities fraud. <laughs> and now oh. that a judge says that he is he has to avoid more time in a U.S. prison because he has dealt with too much mental anguish and that he's a little flight risk over here. And and that combined with the company assigned mentor to me, he was a verbally abusive person. Like you in your writing, I can't get over this thing, that it was kind of just a you put so much thought process into it when they recruited on campus and they told us that culture is so important and mentorship and intergenerational, you know, they call it be long-term greedy. But when you got there, these people just threw you into the tub and yep. um, they were treated that way and they wanted to treat you that way. And I wonder how much of that continues with this huge chasm between, you know, the the boomers at the office and the, the work from home so, insurgents. So I think that some of it is generational and some of it is deeply psychological. I have been the victim of abuse. I've had PTSD. I've had to unrelate it to my work. I have suffered greatly with it. I've gone through years of therapy to deal with it. The thing that happens when someone is abused, you pretty much have only two parts. Now, this is a fast dilution. There's a lot of stuff you do. Abuse victims go through such a great deal. But the thing is, you basically get two decisions. You either choose to make sure that the world does not operate like this again, that you put more love and more joy and you try and avoid the thing that happened to you happening to another person because it was so abhorrent. Or you decide that the universe owns you something and you will see, you will have satisfaction. You will see to it that not only will you have the satisfaction of someone else suffering as you had, you will be the one to do it. You will be the one that will have that satisfaction. Yeah, I think about that a lot. I do too. I'm deeply scarred from my first years in America. Like, I, I really am. Like, if you want to know why I'm angry, it's because I was mistreated as, and I watched people get mistreated too. It wasn't just me. And just in one of my non-specific jobs that I'll never be specific on for legal reasons, it's, it's like, you wouldn't think that something that happened so long ago really matters, but it matters for a while and it changes the person you are. And what I don't think bosses realize is when you do this to a person, when you let a toxic culture live, you are destroying that person. And that person will remember you and hate you for the rest of their life. And I think bosses just think, ah, it won't happen to me. No one will hate No one hates me. I'm, I'm good. This is just how the world works. Work is bad, right? Work is bad if you let it be bad. If you are a boss who decides that you want a company where this terrible stuff happens, where people suffer because you don't fire toxic people. If that's what you want, that's how the world's going to look. That is the world you will create. You will create future monsters who look and sound just like you. You will create scenarios where abusive people are able to not just abuse people, but succeed in doing so. People, they will become rich. They will be enriched through the process of destroying lives, primarily young lives. Young people are the ones that get abused in these scenarios. If that's what you want, then, God, I just hope your company burns to the ground and you're in the building. How could I be more honest than that? But that kind of mantra of, oh, yeah, well, I suffered, so you suffered too, that is the mark of a sociopath. If you think like that, if your reaction to the world, inside and outside of work, 
is that because I suffered, you too must suffer. You are an actual sociopath. You do not have empathy. You must be removed from society, either through your own methods or through the law, because that is the big problem. That is all of these issues I talk about. Every single damn one of them is an issue of empathy. Doesn't matter about the subject. Quiet quitting, uh, return to office, all of it. All of it mostly comes down to what do you care more about? Your vague ideals or the positive or negative existence of another human? Do you really care about the office or is it just because you want to have your nasty little party every day where everyone has to know you're in charge? If that is what you need out of this, I can't say enough unkind words for you, but I believe that this is the problem and it is a problem of nobody truly at that level has the empathy necessary to be responsible for another human life. Ed Zitron, CEO of EZPR. I love having you on this show. The Substack is Where's Your Ed At? You could read him in Business Insider, The Atlantic. He's everywhere these days. Sir, please, please come back on. I w- will be my great pleasure. Full disclosure, stay with us. Joining me from LA is Kian Gohar, CEO of Geolab, a leadership innovation practice. He co-authored the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Competing in the New World of Work. How are you, sir? So great to be with you today, Robin. Well, I have a big question, and this is this sounds a little obnoxious. You can read the Wall Street Journal op-ed page and CEOs and people like Jamie Dimon on Wall Street rolling their eyes on this reluctant return back to the office. Would we even be having this conversation if unemployment was at 10%? or if we were in some sort of like 2002 or 2008 type scenario? It's a great question. I think uh, it's a little bit different. Uh, We have seen a tremendous amount of savings by a lot of people over the pandemic. And so they built up cushions and they feel almost a little bit job proof. So even if there is a oncoming recession and unemployment gets higher, people feel like they have more choices. The other thing is that people have really made a fundamental shift over the last two and a half years since the pandemic started about what their expectations are of how they want to live and how they want to work. And they're willing to make trade-offs. People are willing to take less money to have more flexibility and to have the ability to have a uh, autonomy or their schedule. So I think it's just different than what's been in the past and uh, the circumstances have changed. But Keon, how much, again, is that a function of the fact that we're at 3.5% unemployment, which is a multi-decade low? Yes, and we're having this conversation over Zoom, and many people had great performance numbers over 2020 and 2021 over remote work. But this is a peculiar environment, again, you know, where everybody is struggling to hire people. I think it really depends from industry to industry. You can't generalize and say what works in um, for knowledge economy workers in finance or engineering or research is the same thing that's going to work for frontline workers or manufacturing workers. People are having different kinds of economies. And so, yes, uh, the the any kind of slowdown will have a ramification on people's willingness to uh, perhaps stop quiet quitting and actually do a little more hustle. But uh, I don't think it's I, I don't think the, the slowing economy will dramatically change people's expectations of how they will show up to work. Um, we found in the in the pandemic that uh, collaboration wasn't about uh, where you worked, but how you work and how you show up to work. And I think that's what really matters. And companies are trying to figure that out to create environments that encourages their employees to be engaged, not quite quit, 
And at the same time, they recognize that even if there is a slowdown, they still need to keep their youngest workers, their Gen Z workers uh, engaged because they're the people who are actually going to help uh, build the foundations for the company after any uh, slowdown happens. Is this, uh, is uh, you see the generational divide with uh, Gen Xers and boomers kind of rolling their eyes at millennials and the Gen Z types? Like you have no idea what collaboration is. You know, the fact that there's something called Slack, <laughs> which dominates email conversations, the fact that a lot of workers have decamped to places like Miami or Mexico City, and maybe they got lazy on this. I definitely sense a palpable resentment from older workers, people in middle management, people who put in their dues and got on the commuter train for decades. Yeah, sure. Um, I get that. Um, but the circumstances have changed. Uh, similarly, like we had just this round of um, student debt payoff that was uh, given by the federal government to people who have uh, student debt at, at up to a certain income level and people who've already paid off their debt roll their eyes. But that's just the circumstances of where we are. And so, um, yes, some older workers, I would say mostly uh, boomers are probably a little more resistance to this kind of hybrid work and they don't have the skills from a digital and software perspective to be as digitally native as millennials and Gen Z. But I think um, the, the real opportunity is to figure out how do you solve for this? We can't, we're not going back to work. Those companies who think that we are going to go back to the old days where you're in the office most of the time, is just not realistic. People have been working very hard, very productive in a hybrid and remote environment for the last two years. And we know that it works. There are reasons to be in the office and um, there are valid reasons like solving a complex problem trying to get unstuck around a particular issue or even to celebrate and have team bonding. But we found in the pandemic that so many things that we thought productivity required us to do in FaceTime is no longer valid. I don't think it's a, a myth of that we need to keep uh, pulling up in this new world of work. What about FaceTime the other way around from middle to upper management? I mean, there are some companies that are so bloated with people who've been climbing the ladder for decades that it's much harder to justify yourself. It reminds me of that scene in office space with the consultants where they turn to the worker. They say, what exactly is it that you do? <laughs> uh, the FaceTime is important. And um, here's what I'll say is I think actually Gen Z is a little bit concerned now because you know they came into the workforce in the last two years. So the oldest Gen Z workers are about 25 years old. And they're recognizing that for their own career advancement, they actually need to have some face time in the office. They actually need to be able to uh, demonstrate that you know they're adding value, not just behind the scenes. Uh, the irony of all this is that Gen Z workers come into the office and no one's there. So they're trying to show <laughs> FaceTime, but even their managers are at home and they're having a hybrid schedule. And so uh, I think there, there will be some desire to create um, incentives and values and guardrails for how we collaborate. But uh, to your point about older workers, I actually find that in our research that people who are in Gen X are the ones who were most uh, interested and most likely to approve of a hybrid work style. This was unique amongst generations and partially because uh, early younger Gen Xers and older millennials are those who have kids at home and um, they're able mm. to have autonomy to maximize their work and their productivity. So 
late millennials, early Gen Xers. Um, these are people who are actually very open to working in a hybrid environment. Those who have been a little more resistant are those, I would say, boomer generation folks who are struggling to learn some of the digital tools uh, to be able to communicate across different channels, whether that's Slack, whether that's Teams, whether that's Zoom, you name your software collaboration tool, there's so many out there. And um, there's a little bit of, of overwhelm in terms of how many channels there are and how people need to communicate across different things. And boomers are having uh, difficulty with that because they do have 30 plus years of experience of doing work in a particular way. And uh, frankly, that's uh, going to change as they retire and they uh, sunset into uh, the work life. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Kian Gohar. He is founder and CEO of Geolab and co-author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Competing in the New World of Work with uh, Keith Ferrazzi and Noel Weirich. Uh, tell me about some of the interesting things you learned in this book that, you know, with with with, with jaundiced eyes or whatever, when you went into it, that you realized, wow, this is really a sea change. We're not just talking about a, a, a four or five year pandemic reset that's going to revert back to some sort of normalcy. You know, we interviewed over 2,000 executives from all across the world, large companies, small companies, to try to better understand what were the behaviors that they demonstrated in the pandemic to thrive in the world of uncertainty. And um, we realized that there were four key characteristics um, that were really, really critical. And they sound obvious by listening to them, but they're actually quite difficult to implement on a day-to-day basis. And not every team is very good at them. So for example, these four include collaboration and inclusion, agility, resilience, and foresight. One of the things that has become really top of mind that surprised us, obviously, was uh, mental health and mental well-being is a very important topic amongst uh, the workforce, especially after two and a half years of a lot of turmoil in society, whether that was uh, because of the pandemic or because of politics or all sorts of other things. And we saw that 40% more adults in the workforce had anxiety in 2020 and 2021 compared to before the pandemic. So this idea of how do you stay mentally well and resilient has become really top of mind. And we think of resilience as oftentimes as an individual responsibility. Like we think, you know, we b- will build up resilience over the course of a lifetime. And that's absolutely true. But the thing that really surprised us were the teams that were most successful were those that had a level of team resilience. They were trying to prioritize how the team got their projects done and how the team was able to cross the finish line, regardless of the level of individual resilience one person came to the office with. And so I think this topic of how do you make sure your team is holistically um, well-rounded, well uh, well. Uh, aware of the mental challenges that the team has to accomplish is going to be part of the way we work going forward. It's not going to go away. And yes, there are some things that have rebounded already from pre-pandemic to pandemic and post-pandemic, but our behaviors have really shifted. And I think it's going to take five to 10 plus years for us to really see the effects that the pandemic will have on how we live and how we work, much more so than the crisis time that we were in for the last two years. Wow. So on quiet quitting, which I don't know if you think it's overrated, where employees coast at work and just come in you know, to get the paycheck, the Wall Street Journal had some interesting stats today by way of Gallup. It said the number of workers who say they are actively disengaged from their jobs, defined as workers who are unhappy about their work and resentful their needs aren't being met, is rising, according to new research by Gallup, which has tracked workers' investment in their jobs since 2000. 
it says nearly one third of workers describe themselves as engaged or enthused about work, while just under 20% describe themselves as actively disengaged. The rest are not engaged. People who do the minimum required and are psychologically detached from their jobs. Uh, you know, people under 35 reported the sharpest drop in engagement. I, I got to tell you how old school I am. How much of this is the latency, is the complacency of just this peculiar economy that we're in, where unemployment has really shot down from the pandemic mid-teens to 3.5%. People are coasting because they can. Maybe they have some pent-up savings from the pandemic or fiscal stimulus or uh, you know, PPE loans. What, what, what's missing? Why does this balance sheet balance? No, it's a, a good question. And this idea of uh, quiet quitting is not new. We're just giving it a, a, a term <laughs> that is savvy to hear in the media. People have been coasting at work for a long time, <laughs> whether that was um, Gen X, which is probably the king of uh, quiet quitting and coasting at work and not really trying to work too hard. I'm Generation X, so I know that feeling quite well. Um, but I, I think this idea of putting in the the absolute minimum to get by is not a new phenomenon. Um, I think there is a part of American work culture that has always prioritized and glamorized this idea of hustling and um, always trying to achieve being present, going above board, and really trying to accomplish um, the best that you can. And that is a fundamental part of American work culture and will always be there. At the same time, there are others who are not engaged by their job. They don't feel like, for example, that there is a career ladder to where they're going to go. Maybe they feel that their employ their employers don't have the best interests in mind. Maybe they're not motivated by the purpose or the lack of purpose of what their job holds for them and their company. And so there is an issue of, of mismanagement or rather poor communication and poor management. And so uh, there's a whole host of reasons why people are not interested in this idea of co constantly hustling because they don't necessarily see the path to upward mobility. And so this isn't necessarily new. I think these are conflicting strains within the American work culture that have been there always along. But all of a sudden, now we have a term that is applied to it, and it is a result of people who I think might have a backlash against sort of the excesses of the pandemic era, where people perhaps felt um, they took advantage of the situation. And so I think the reality is that um, as employees and Gen, Gen Z and um, are coming back into the workforce or coming into the workforce, they really need to, uh, employers really need to figure out how do they motivate them? How do they keep them engaged? How do they get them excited about their work? Otherwise, you're going to have a whole generation of lost skills because the reality is that any downturn inev inevitably has um, uh, an upturn. And so where do you get those employees back? Well, um, they might leave now and you might get them back again in a couple years time, but you're going to have a, a whole set of folks who don't have the right skills and having to retrain them. And so it actually costs companies more not to keep people engaged than it is to uh, be disengaged. So we were actually just uh, coming out with a, an article re in the next uh, couple of weeks about how employers should really think about um, maximizing their engagement of their Gen Z employees because they're the ones who are going to be critical to the success of the company. You know, I'm going to close out with a wild card question for you. You can go to Los Angeles, um, Century City, downtown LA, San Francisco, Miami, Boston, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., obviously Midtown Manhattan. What's going to happen to all of this square footage? It's a great question. I think uh, we're going to see uh, a mix in uh, how real estate is going to evolve, especially in the commercial sector. Obviously, there's a glut of commercial space in those downtown areas, and uh, we're working with 
um, Janet Pogue from Gensler on this research article about how companies need to reimagine how they are going to get people to come into whatever office looks like, whether that is uh, a corporate headquarters or whether that's a third space, or whether those are satellite offices in suburbs or near transportation centers or places where younger Gen Z folks want to congregate. The reality is that we are rethinking what the workspace, what an office looks like. It's no longer a place where you go and meet people because you can do that on Zoom or on Teams. It's a place where you want to congregate to actually collaborate and see people in a way that is different than doing it virtually. And for younger workers, that space has a different meaning. So I think the onus really comes down on um, landlords and uh, commercial property owners and uh, employers to rethink what that space that they've historically had as quote unquote for work is going to be reimagined. And some of that may turn into mixed use. Some of that may turn into more interesting uh, uses. And I think we're just going to see a, a vast change over the next 10 years of how people consider what it means to quote unquote go into an office to meet um, their colleagues. Kian Gohar, founder and CEO of Geolab and co-author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Competing in the New World of Work. It was issued by the Harvard Business Review Press. Come back on this show anytime. Thank you so much, Robin. It was uh, wonderful to speak with you. Full disclosure, stay with us. Finally, to close out the show, some candor from a Virginia marketing executive who recently left for a new job after his old employer insisted on a hard return to the office. So I, um, like so many creative professionals over the past three years, um, was confronted with working from home in a meaningful, long-term way back in March of 2020. At the time, and, and for many, many months, working from home felt just like holding on for dear life. There was the constant fear that the pandemic and economic forces would jeopardize my job. So I, and, and I know many people were in a similar situation. I worked my tail off from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. many days. I was always over communicating and making sure that I was, you know, providing value and doing a good job, but also making sure that I was visible to any and all decision makers in my company. You know, then came the burnout. Um, by the time Working from home felt normal. Inflation was, you know, chipping away at my salary and raises were nowhere to be seen. Um, insult to injury, there was a rush to return to the office that felt more like an attempt to monitor my movement and control my pro productivity more than any interest in my well-being. You know, there's no sense of camaraderie in the return and all the negatives, they seem to loom larger. You know, I, I hadn't had to force small talk about the NFL in over two years, and here I am suddenly, I feel like I'm back in middle school praying the jocks don't notice me. You know, a truly frustrating part is that there was never any compelling point to why I was back in the office. It may sound childish to gripe about the inconveniences of a commute or being forced to wear uncomfortable clothes. You know, these were the trappings of office life for so long. But we just went through a massive social experiment showing that um, you know, those pain in the butt features of work just weren't necessary, like not necessary at all. As I was sort of, you know, recognizing that the centrality of workplace culture, you know, was annoying and I didn't need to derive my personality from, you know, my industry and self-worth from the praise of middle management, um, things began to sort of come sharply into focus. And, and the main thing was simply that I missed my kids. 
you know, a 15 minute game of catch in the backyard on a break is way more important than any water cooler conversation I'd ever had. So, you know, working from home, it, it's not that it's without challenges. Um, you know, I have to be on top of, you know, your time blocks and productivity. Um, nonetheless, uh, you know, I like being responsible for my own results and capable of managing my time. Um, intentionality is really what's needed for me to succeed working from home. Making the choice to reach out to colleagues at other companies, knowing that it's okay to turn off the laptop at 5 p.m. and speaking up when I need guidance, all of that is tougher in a remote environment. But it's so much more rewarding to lose the overbearing centrality of work in my life in favor of a more complete picture. I like being a good dad, a present husband, a member of my community, and, you know, a guy who reads an occasional book. I'm really good at my job and I value working hard, but it's not the only thing that I do. Working from home allows me to feel more like a complete version of myself. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fullderadio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. Follow along on Twitter, Insta, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle Full D Radio. And you can catch me on both MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week.